Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Facebook, though I probably won't find you there, um, and or Twitter at EBR underscore VFR, where I will someday uh, hopefully be spending more time again. But every time I go there, it's just, I see the information about COVID-19 and I just, I just don't want to right now. (laughs) Hopefully there will be less cat in the background this week and the audio is working as best as can be expected from my small handheld device, which also happens, you know, to access much of the collected knowledge of humanity. It is amazing how much we both live in the future and are simultaneously stuck in the past. (laughs) As someone who's very interested in science and technology, I see all the amazing things that are moving forward. And then as someone who has studied history, I see all the ways in which we are repeating the mistakes of the past. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. So, as I said last week, I don't really want to talk about COVID-19 very much because, again, I am not an expert. I can tell you what the experts are saying, but you're probably getting that, hopefully, from um, directly from the CDC or from trusted websites that are actually health-related. And so, obviously, I would still say, please continue to shelter in place as much as you can. Wear a mask when you have to go outside and wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. Every time that you are outside and have touched anything, keep your hands away from your face as much as possible, even though I know that's very hard. And so, yeah, just all of the standard stuff we've been saying every single week. Now, there is a note of potential good news. And I wanted to talk about this because it's nice to talk about something that might actually be positive, but huge grains of salt all around because I can't say for certain that this is true. South Korea is reporting that they believe that patients who have tested positive after having recovered from COVID-19 were actually not reinfected, but rather that the test they use, which looks for pieces of the virus, It can't distinguish between live viruses where someone is actually infected currently with the uh, infection or with leftover dead virus uh, pieces which are still circulating in the um, bloodstream after the person has recovered from having COVID-19. And so hopefully this result will hold out and we will eventually be able to actually have herd immunity to this new virus. However, again, this is all with big caveats. The CDC is still cautioning people that there is no positive proof that you cannot become reinfected. So it is still not the time to go and test this out. More research will need to be done before we can actually say that yes, infection and subsequent recovery confers immunity. So, yes, hopefully good, but right now we can't count on it. So, again, stay home. 
as much as you can. Um, I know it's, it's getting to me too, but it's what we have to do to keep our friends and neighbors and ourselves healthy. And, um, so despite the fact that some people don't seem to get that, uh, hopefully people listening to this show do get that. All right, let's get to the show proper. This first story shows us how decisions made in the recent and not so recent past can actually have a dramatic impact on our lives. So I was actually pretty amazed to read this, mostly because I didn't know it already. Um, And this was in uh, the latest newsletter from Atlas Obscura, uh, which is actually one of my favorite websites. Uh, Just, it's, I really like it. Um, But apparently, the reason that allergies are bad in many places, especially cities in the U.S., is a decision which most of us will never even have noticed. Again, I hadn't noticed. It turns out that most trees in cities are male. Now, not all trees are dioecious or binary, with male and female plants being separate. Some are monoecious, which means that they have male and female flowers on the same tree. And those include oak, pine, and fig trees. There are even some that produce so-called perfect flowers, which have both the female pistil and male stamen in the same flower, such as in apple trees. Now, of course, that doesn't help an apple tree very much, at least from our perspective, because if it's not grown from a clone of an already edible tree, then it doesn't really work for us. Apples are extremely heterozygous, which means that each fertilized seed in the apple is made of a random combination of alleles, which makes growing apples from seeds extremely tough. You may end up with a randomly delicious apple or a bitter, inedible one. Pretty much every apple tree that produces apples for food or for drink, uh, with our revived uh, cidering tradition in America, which I am very happy for. I enjoy cider. Uh, Almost all of those trees were created by grafting a good fruiting plant stock onto a good rootstock. And what's interesting is that the rootstock might come from a plant that doesn't produce good apples, um, but that has a hardy rooting system that will help the plant to grow and thrive. Um, I always think that's really interesting that they, not only are you grafting uh, a tree together with existing um, wood from an existing living tree, but you aren't necessarily taking the roots from that same kind of tree, but you could be taking roots from a completely different tree. (laughs) Now, it does, however, make sense from the perspective of the apple tree itself, because if you have quote-unquote perfect flowers and are always self-pollinating, not having a mechanism for genetic diversity can lead to a whole species being wiped out by a pathogen. Because as we know, Uh, cloning is not a good thing when you are exposed to pathogens. Uh, Just ask the banana. (laughs) But getting back to allergies, all of these kinds of trees do produce pollen, 
But according to Tom Ogren, a horticulturist who writes about allergy-free gardening and who has developed a scale for just how allergenic the trees most often planted in America really are, the male-only trees are responsible for most of the sneezing, watery and itchy eyes, and other symptoms of seasonal allergies. Ogren has been attempting to proselytize about this issue for over 30 years, ever since he purchased a house and wanted to make it as non-allergenic as possible, because his wife has both allergies and asthma. He first noticed all of the trees in his neighborhood in San Luis Obispo were male. He thought it was just a quirk of the local area. However, as he looked deeper into the issue, he found that this was a common practice. He even found a 1949 USDA Yearbook of Agriculture, which advises city landscapers in California, quote, only male trees should be planted because the fallen mature fruits of the female trees have a disagreeable odor. Now, two other mentions in the same pamphlet also suggest planting male-only only male trees, uh, especially for trees like cottonwoods and things like that. Um, and so it definitely seems to point to the idea that uh, when in doubt, the idea was plant male trees because then you don't have to deal with all of the uh, things that have to do with female trees. Um, and so seed pods and uh, fruits and things like that. And so one of the other big factors, though, was that our tree landscape was once much different than it is today. Elm trees that once covered much of our landscape were wiped out by Dutch elm disease, a fungal infection spread by bark beetles, which was obviously an invasive disease, uh, which was imported accidentally from Britain in a uh, shipment of logs. And so by 18, sorry, by 1989, around 75% of the 77 million elms that used to dot the landscape were dead. Most of these trees were replaced by male maple clones and other varieties such as willow, poplar, ash, and other trees that shed large amounts of pollen as they matured. Nurseries also began to sell more male trees as clones from male trees were easier to cultivate than new trees from natural pollination. Sadly, if they had thought to do the opposite, we'd have a much less pollen floating through the air every spring. If they had done it the opposite and planted hundreds of female trees with no males, it would have been just as sterile and tidy without any pollen, Ogren says. Female trees don't make fruits or seeds if there are no males around. Now, one of the most often quoted female trees that could cause trouble is the ginkgo. Apparently, female ginkgos have a bad smell, uh, somewhat likened to rotting fish. But it, this only happens if the tree has been fertilized. If only, if only female trees would have been planted, there wouldn't have been a smell. However, the pollen of the male ginkgo tree produces motile sperm. And so basically these uh, allergen, these pollen allergens actually are covered in flagellum, 
Once the pollen gets in your nose, it will germinate and start swimming up there to get to where it's going, Ogren said. It's pretty invasive. And so he is very serious about this field, as noted. He has actually developed the Ogren Plant Allergy Scale, or OPALS, where trees are rated from 1 to 10 depending on how allergenic they are. Now, he's managed to convince the city of San Luis Obispo and the California Public Health Department to consult the guide, but he hasn't really gotten large-scale adoption. He worries most about areas around schools and nursing homes, as children and the elderly are the hardest-hit groups by allergies, as well as, of course, those with asthma. Now again, his theory is interesting and has a biological backing. However, I haven't mentioned yet that Ogren refers to this phenomenon as, quote, botanical sexism. Now, I'll let Paul Rise, the director of Oregon, of Oregon State University's College of Forestry, explain why he'd hesitate to use that phrase, despite thinking that the effect should definitely be further researched. I just wouldn't call it sexism. Ascribing a real-life human problem to the botanical world might seem like we're trivializing, trivializing what humans, particularly women, face, he said. Now, he also notes that any time we plant an overabundance of one type of tree, whether it is a single species, a genus, or in the case of so-called botanical sexism, male trees, there are bounds, bound to be problems. Now, he notes the loss of the Bradford pear and, as we may all know, ash trees, which have been mostly wiped out by the scourge, both locally and on a more national uh, level, by the invasive emerald ash borer. You may know that a large stand of trees were wiped out at Quabbin several years ago, and the effect is still rather eerie. Of note also is that in the 2018 rankings for the hardest places to live with spring allergies, Springfield, Mass. was ranked number 11, with Worcester ranked as 72 and Boston at 82 among 100 cities. Springfield had actually moved up from 20 in 2016. And it would be interesting to know if this is climate related or because new problematic trees and plants have been added to landscaped areas. Ogram sums up the issue thusly. A big part of the problem is most people don't know much about trees and think, well, trees are good and no trees are bad, he says. But trees are just like people. They have a multitude of differences. Some people, some trees are human friendly and some are just the opposite. So yeah, that is very surprising. Um, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, I am definitely one of those people who thinks more trees is good, less trees is bad, um, and hadn't really contemplated how their pollen uh, production affects that mechanism. And so I think it's really interesting. And if you have allergies or asthma and you're looking at planting trees, um, you should probably look up what score they get on the opal scale. Okay, let's switch gears now to talk about a really interesting report describing a mysterious cache 
of giant sloth bones, which has given researchers insight into how they would have lived. Now, when trying to explain how ancient species behaved, researchers often struggle because bones can only tell you so much about how an animal used its body. In fact, there's been um, a lot of debate when it comes to um, even artistic uh, and scientific renderings of animals of how we look at them based on their bones. And some people have done um, comparative uh, anatomy drawings of what some modern animals would look based on their bones versus what they actually look in comparison to how we do it with ancient animals. And it's not always, uh, sometimes it looks very, very weird. So it can be really hard for us to tell exactly how an animal looked from its uh, bones. And it's ex even rarer where we have cases where the bones are found in a particular place or position, which allows researchers to be able to extrapolate possible information about the animal's behavior in life. So, if you're not aware, North America once had many species of megafauna, including giant ground sloths or Arimatherium. We also had uh, horses and camels and lions and all sorts of things. Uh, they were all wiped out during the last ice age. These, now, these guys were, as the name implies, ground-dwelling animals rather than the arboreal creatures we know and love today. Some 20,000 years ago, a group of animals, including 22 giant ground sloths, some as large as modern elephants, as well as an ancient horse, deer, pampatherae, which is an ancient relative of the armadillo, and gomphatherae, an extinct animal that was actually very similar in shape to elephants, complete with tusks, uh, but weren't actually related to elephantidae, uh, but represented a form of parallel evolution. Now, all of these animals died together and were later preserved in asphalt. They were found in the Santa Elena Peninsula in Ecuador. Fifteen of the sloths were adults, and the others represented a spectrum from subadults to juveniles and even potential newborns or fetuses. The area is a natural tar seep today, which has long been exploited by humans. Many other fossils have been found in the area, but this find is a unique one. The area is referred to as Tanque Loma, which translates to Tank Hill and refers to the oil containers of the local oil company that stand atop the hill where the fossils were found. Because of course, tar seeps equal oil. Um, and so while this once seemed like a straightforward site, it turns out that there actually was no evidence that the animals actually perished in asphalt. Now, when we think of asphalt seeps, we generally think of the La Brea tar pits in California. This is the classic site where herbivores were trapped in the asphalt, then predators were caught trying to prey on the trapped herbivores, and then also birds and insects and all sorts of flora and fauna were actually uh, preserved by being trapped and then covered in the tar. And we've been doing excavations there for years and 
everyone will probably think about um, the Smilodons or uh, saber-toothed tigers that we find there. And so that's kind of what you think of when you think of an asphalt seep or a tar seep. But the sloths and the other animals here didn't die that way. And so for years, because people thought they had died that way, the site remained a mystery. Emily Lindsay, the study's lead author and, coincidentally, the assistant curator and excavation site director at La Brea Tar Pits, notes... Nothing got stuck at Tanke Loma. The animals died in an aquatic setting, like many other fossil sites, and the bones just fortuitously preserved by seeping asphalt. It blew my mind when I first realized that. But then, of course, this presented a new mystery. While it seemed like the animals, while it seemed that they had died in an aquatic setting, no fossils of fish or crocodiles or turtles were found. The best that they could find were a few shells. But there was a huge amount of plant fossils. Twigs, leaves, thorns, all just bits of plants. Crucially, equal to or smaller than the distance between the ridges of the giant ground sloth's teeth. These ridges are actually called interlophes. And so this led researchers to develop a theory. This plant matter almost certainly represented a large pile of feces or gut contents surrounding the animals. Now, this was an odd situation. And so the researchers thought, well, let's look at modern animals and see if we can find some sort of parallel situation where this kind of um, conglomeration might happen. And then we can figure out from modern animals, what the behavioral um, cycle was here, and so it turns out that there had that there was actually a modern equivalent in recent history found in hippopotamuses. In the 1970s in Tanzania, researchers surveyed the animals for 18 months. Around 140 hippos gathered around a watering hole in order to drink and to wallow in the cool water before the dry season began. As the water began to shrink, the amount of feces became larger. By the end of the season, hippo remains ringed the last bit of water. The water had been contaminated, and by the end of the dry season, only 40 of the 140 hippos survived. Not only does this explain what they found at Tanki Loma, it also explains what wasn't found there. If the water was contaminated, it wouldn't have been full of marine animals. Now, again, despite the rather dire end to this group, their deaths give us important insights into the life history of these animals. Since the remains can be seen virtually in situ from what was once a swampy area, rather than having been carried there um, to the site by a water um, river or something like that, it tells us that these animals were social and would have actually lived in groups of mixed adults and young. And of course, that also suggests that they cared for their young because there were sub-adults and younger animals all in the group. Evidence from another site in Ecuador's Quito Valley also indicates that this is true. Now, Erythmetherium were huge. The ones found at Tanquiloma, Erythmetherium larilardi, 
is amongst the largest and rivaled the elephants like the elephant like Notiomastodon plantensis, which was a gomathera, also found a tonkiloma. And so they most likely had a long tongue and the ability to extend their heads uh, like modern sloths do in order to reach leafy vegetation above above their heads. <laughs> However, unlike their modern descendants, giant ground sloths could walk on two feet, though they did tend to walk on all fours and would have been able to move at a much more rapid pace than modern sloths, which are of course known today for their slowness. A lot of the extinct Ice Age animals in the Americas have some living corollary somewhere on Earth today. Horses, lions, wolves, elephants, said Lindsay. But there is nothing anywhere in the world today that is even kind of like a giant ground sloth. They're unique, and they're completely gone. Eric Lopez Reyes, co-author of the new study, and an archaeologist at the Universidad Estatal Peninsula, to San Elena, convinced his university to build the Museo Paleontologico Megaterio, which now houses the remains that were found at Tanque Loma. He and his colleagues, including Emily Lindsay, are attempting to have the government designate the area around Tanque Loma as a protected heritage site. Wrote Roman Carion, the Santa Elena Peninsula is known as a locality where very important fossils have been found for South American and Ecuadorian paleontology. Tanguiloma is a very interesting place to study, and there is still so much to discover. And it turns out that not only is there this rich history found in the asphalt, but there is also another deposit above this layer, which contains thousands of bones of small animals like birds, lizards, snakes, and rodents, which could potentially shed a great deal of life onto the past environmental changes in the region, according to Lindsay. So hopefully this area will be preserved and more and more interesting and important fossils will be found. Okay, let us take a moment and do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about another uh, fossil, this time of a dinosaur. So do stay tuned for that. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors. 
shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Welcome back to Evidence-Based Radio. We are talking about fossils right now. And so we are going to move on to talk about a dinosaur fossil. And what is unique about this is that we can say with some certainty now that it must be classed as the first dinosaur that would have swam. Now, we used to think that dinosaurs, especially large sauropods and uh, the duck-billed dinosaurs, that they spent time either largely in the water or near it. But we haven't thought that for many, many decades. We learned over time that dinosaurs were land-loving lot. Those sauropods didn't wallow in the shallows or swamps, but traveled across plains and grasslands. The newly discovered tale of the already known dinosaur Spinosaurus has finally given us evidence that there were dinosaurs who did indeed find comfort in the water, at least part-time. The tail fossil was found in Morocco and belongs to Spinosaurus aegypticus, a a Cretaceous predator which could grow up to 23 feet long. The tail is broad and paddle-like and would have behaved much like a modern crocodile rather than other carnivorous dinosaurs, according to the paper published this week in the journal Nature. This discovery is the nail in the coffin for the idea that non-avian dinosaurs never invaded the aquatic realm, Nizar Ibrahim, a paleontologist at the University of Detroit Mercy and lead author of the new study, said in a statement. This dinosaur was actively pursuing prey in the water column, not just standing in shallow waters waiting for fish to swim by. Now, Spinosaurus was a uh, quite large animal. He was around the size, they were around the size of a T-Rex, but they had a striking feature, a set of massive spikes along their vertebrae that reached up to 5.4 feet above the back. And researchers believe this would have supported a skin-covered sail, much like that of the non-dinosaur Dimetrodon, or the modern sailfish. Researchers already believed that they ate fish because of their long snouts and cone-shaped teeth, which resemble more closely modern crocodiles again. But researchers previously thought that it would have simply waded along shorelines and hunted in shallow waters. That is except for Ibrahim and his colleagues. In 2014, they wrote a paper in the journal Science arguing that Spinosaurus would have been adapted for spending large amounts of time in the water. They already knew that they had reduced backed limbs, flat feet, and nostrils high on their heads, as well as dense bones, which had a, would have helped with buoyancy while swimming. However, they were missing the crucial tail fossil. Only one existing skeleton of Spinosaurus aegypticus is mostly complete. 
Others were housed in Munich, Germany, and unfortunately were destroyed by bombing during World War II. Unfortunately, a lot of really important things were destroyed by bombings in World War II. Sigh. Anyways, other specimens were missing much of the tail and vertebral sections, which is what they needed. <laughs> so the new tail fossil was found in the Kem Kem beds of southeastern Morocco in a 95 million year old sediment layer, and it is around 80% complete. This means it's now part of the most complete Cretaceous theropod skeleton thus far found on mainland Africa, as sections of the animal were first found in 2007 to 8, and were used in, in that first uh, paper to argue about the already possible aquatic nature of Spinosaurus. Its placement in the Chem-Chem bed is further evidence for its place as a semi-aquatic animal, as this bed represents a delta system where many examples of lungfish, sawfish, coelacanths, and crocodiliforms were also found. Yes, coelacanths. There are ancient coelacanths and modern coelacanths, and that doesn't change anything about the theory of evolution or anything like that. Um, hopefully you all have put that uh, one to bed long ago, but every time I read the word coelacanth, I feel somehow morally obliged <laughs> to point out that finding them in modern times does not mean that uh, evolution is not true. <laughs> but anyways, the tail of the young spinosaur is tall and flat like a fin. Um, and actually, when you look at the um, reproduction, it looks really very close to a modern crocodile tail. The researchers created a plastic replica and attached it to a robotic controller. They found that compared to uh, other plastic replicas, it would create eight times more thrust in the water than tails from two other theropods, Allosaurus and Coleophysis, a smaller Triassic hunter. It was also 2.6 times more efficient and behaved more like the tail of a modern crocodile or crested newt, animals that both divide their time between the water and land. Now, we found fossils of Spinosaurus inland, so we know that they didn't spend all of their time in the water, but this new find gives us concrete evidence that they would have been very comfortable swimming in Cretaceous waters. And they would have been very scary. <laughs> uh, Spinosauruses are definitely one of those giant, uh, giant theropods that you would not want to run into. And so just because they look a little bit weird with the uh, flattened tail and the sail, they had a mouth full of teeth and they were big. <laughs> Of course, there were a lot of big things in the water with them, um, so there would have been plenty of food. And it turns out that they also had a large distribution around the globe, so this suggests that they would have been an important part of many aquatic ecosystems. Okay, so it turns out Ibrahim has written another paper on the area itself, which suggests that this may have been a very dangerous place to live during the Cretaceous. 
because in addition to Spinosaurus fossils, the remains of three other large-bodied carnivores, a Bilosaurid, Charodontosaurus saharicus, and Deltodromius agilis, have also been found in the area. Interestingly, in contrast, few herbivorous dinosaurs have been encountered. In addition, most sites feature only one or two, not four, large-bodied predators present in one place in the same time period. (laughs) In addition to the overabundance of large-bodied dinosaurian predators, the authors write, at least three of the four large-bodied predators present present in both the Chem-Chem and Baharia assemblages are among the largest, top 10%, dinosaurian predators on record. Now, this might be partially due to the fact that, well, there was an abundance of food around. Um, We know that there was a lot of uh, sea life here, as we were just talking about, for them to feast upon. This was arguably the most dangerous place in the history of planet Earth, a place where a human time traveler would not last very long, says Ibrahim. (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) And so while herbivorous dinosaurs were almost certainly present, they were not as diverse and tended not to fossilize. Now, the abundance hadn't been previously noticed because these beds have been known not only to actual paleontologists, but unfortunately also to commercial fossil hunters. And many skeletons have been removed and shipped across the world to private collections. (sighs) I could could say lots of things about that, but I'm just going to keep going. The team of researchers decided to visit many of these collections to gather a more holistic view of the site's history. This is the most comprehensive piece of work on fossil vertebrates from the Sahara in almost a century, since the famous German paleontologist Ernst Freiherr Stromer von Reichenbach published his last major work in 1936, explains one of the team, paleobiologist Dave Martill from the University of Portsmouth in the UK. The review suggests that there are two distinct fossil-rich sites, the lower Garasaba and the upper Duira formation. Both have an abundance of dinosaurs and pterosaurs, as well as all of those marine species that we've talked about. Now, this area was truly unique, and hopefully we will yet gather more secrets of the African dinosaurs from this area as the area continues to be excavated. Now, African dinosaurs, we don't tend to have as many good African dinosaurs um, as we do other dinosaurs. As we said, this the Spinosaurus skeleton found was the most complete that has been found of a theropod um, in Africa to this date. And um, it's really interesting because one of the places that is really good for um, ancient whale ancestors is actually uh, in the um, Horn of Africa and not, not in the Horn of Africa, I'm sorry, in the, um, in basically in the um, deserts of the Middle East. 
And so there's tons of them and into Egypt and things like that. You can find, um, you can find all sorts of whales uh, just hanging out below the sands. Um, and it's because uh, at one point there was an ocean uh, between Africa and Europe. And then at some point it uh, got cut off. Um, the med it was a uh, sort of proto-Mediterranean. It got cut off and then uh, all of the water dried up. And so all the animals that had been in those waters didn't have anywhere to go. And so they became uh, deposited. And luckily, a lot of the um, animals were actually preserved. So we have a lot of interesting fossils from uh, sort of northern um, reaches of the sort of African um, Asian connected, uh, portion, but I think that it's, I can't think of any, uh, significant, uh, dinosaur formations that I know about that are in sub-Saharan Africa. And so that's actually really interesting. Um, I can't think of any offhand, uh, definitely, Africa is obviously a hotbed for anthropological finds, um, but not so much paleontological finds. So it's just very interesting. Um, and of course, places that have a lot of um, humidity and uh, other um, features of systems that are not great for fossilization probably contributes to some of that. But in terms of dinosaurs, sort of uh, China and uh, actually the U.S. are two of the biggest places. There's a fair amount in South, South America, um, and obviously the beds in America continue into Canada. Um, and there's some uh, smaller animals in Europe. Generally in Europe, you get the amazing shale deposits, uh, which you also get in Canada and in China, where you find things like Archaeopteryx and all sorts of uh, incredible fish skeletons and things like that. Um, but anyways, let's, let's move on. <laughs> uh, we've got a few more stories, so let's get back to it. We are actually going to go back to geology for a moment. And I can't remember if I mentioned this or not, uh, last week, but I just want to remind people that it's really only been in the last 40 maybe 50 years that we've understood plate tectonics. Um, and it just blows my mind um, that uh, it was only adopted pretty much uh, within the uh, sort of edge of my lifetime that is when we have actually understood plate tectonics. And to me, that's just so incredible and uh, so important to kind of remind yourself because it seems like well, it makes so much sense and why didn't people think of it before, but they didn't. Um, and it's just, it's very interesting. Anyways, we obviously spent a fair amount of time on geology last week, but this is a different kind of geology. I wanted to talk tonight about hydrothermal vents. And it's in part because they're one of my favorite ecosystems on the planet. Uh, giant tube worms are the best. They're so weird and cool. Um, <laughs> so researchers from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or MBARI, which by the way has its own YouTube channel, has been studying an area of 
off the coast of the Pacific Northwest along the Juan de Fuca Ridge, northwest of Washington State, called the Endeavor Segment. Since the 1980s, the field has been a research site with 47 chimneys in five major fields being identified. But now, using a high resolution scan, new, using new high resolution scanning, a whole world of events has been discovered. The researchers used an autonomous underwater vehicle, the D. Allen B, a torpedo-shaped yellow AUV around 17 feet long and capable of mapping using multi-beam sonar at a resolution of four feet. To create a map of over 500 chimneys in a zone around nine miles long and one mile wide. Hydrothermal vents are created when water from under the ocean's crust is superheated to as hot as 750 degrees Fahrenheit and then bursts through a crack in the seafloor. Because the water is filled with dissolved minerals, in this case the water is rich in sulfides and that's usually the case, chimneys form around the vent as those minerals precipitate out and build up conglomerations in a sort of similar fashion in some ways to how stalagmites are created. So stalagmites are created from dripping water dripping down. This is created from water being pushed up, but then the minerals falling back down uh, as they precipitate out as the water cools once it hits the ocean water. And so they create a unique ecosystem, which with a rich variety of plants and animals that use the nutrients and minerals released by the superheated water to perform things like chemosynthesis, uh, producing energy using chemical reactions, such as with sulfur rather than sunlight. And of course, there are always animals that are there to prey on other animals that are attracted to the vents. Um, so you get a lot of squat lobsters and, like I said, tube worms and all kinds of shrimps and copepods and whole varieties of um, uh, sponges and things like that that are adapted to living around these extreme environments. And of course, they're also one of the uh, sort of finalists in the um, potential explanations for where life may have begun on the earth because they have all of this potential. Um, there's all of this energy and uh, minerals and um, all the sorts of things that could easily have sparked life. And so... The Endeavor site has been active for around 2,300 years and is subject to intense seismic vibrations as the Juan de Fuca Fault is rather active. Some of the highest vents have formed here, including one that was 150 feet above the seafloor and was nicknamed Godzilla until it crumbled in 1995. While the main research area is simply called the Main Endeavor Field, the others have been given fun names like High Rise for a field that looks like a city skyline, Sasquatch, Mothra, and Salty Dog, among others. Now, prior to this new mapping, the area's layout was rather a mystery. It's very hard to see down there because all the particulates in the water create a kind of haze, the Embari senior scientist, geologist, and volcanolo volcanologist David Clegg who is a lead author of the new study on the Endeavor segment, 
the problem was so bad that it was affecting their ability to study the site correctly. There was one well-studied chimney where the composition of the fluid seemed to vary from one research dive to the next. It wasn't until we did our detailed mapping that people realized they had actually been sampling at two different chimneys, Clegg said in a statement. They apparently would encounter one chimney or the other depending on what direction they approached the site. Now, four surveys were performed in 2008 from the research vessel Atlantis and three surveys in 2011 on the research vessel Zephyr, which allowed them to generate a map covering around 24 square miles. They found 572 chimneys taller than 10 feet high, which is really the height you need to be able to distinguish them from other elements on the seafloor. Now, most were under 26 feet, but the tallest were around 90 feet high. Now, most were inactive, with the minerals having built up to the point where the water could no longer exit the chimney. When this happens, the water moves along until it finds another crack and starts a new one, which is why you have all of these dormant chimneys, because the water just kept moving to find a new crack in order to be able to uplift into the uh, sea. Now, Only the 47 previously mapped are active, with the rest being dormant. But what's weird is that a similar field, Alarcon Rise, in the Gulf of California, has only 109 mapped chimneys, with 31 of these active. The researchers think that there are more at Endeavor because although there is a lot of seismic activity, there hasn't been much magmatic activity. In the Gulf of California, Many of the chimneys have most likely been buried or destroyed by magmatic activity. The researchers believe that Endeavor may be heading towards a magmatic phase, and it might be that the lifespan for these newly discovered events may not be extended for very long. Okay, so let us move on now and talk about a really interesting Uh, experiment that people have done recently. And so um, I'm sorry, I don't have the audio for this, but um, I will try and post it uh, so that you can hear it or you can just Google. Um, And so researchers have used a robot spy gorilla to catch wild gorillas singing and, well, apparently farting. (laughs) So, you know, they eat a diet that's very rich in plant materials. They're vegetarians mainly. Uh, And so uh, a lot of leafy vegetables can lead to uh, stomach discomfort and and gas. So, uh, but it's been really cool. They were actually able to capture them singing to themselves. They kind of hum when they eat. Now, oh, actually, you can watch it on a PBS special. Uh, Apparently, Nature, Spy in the Wild 2. And so, but it's so cool. Uh, The, the, um, it's basically an animatronic with a uh, really advanced camera in it, but the animatronic is so lifelike that they were able to just put it into an area where there were gorillas and they were able to accept that it was just another gorilla it was able even to sort of pull up some grass and pretend to eat 
and everything like that. And so this is really cool. And um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if they can do more of this, where you can have animals that really, um, we can finally really see what they're doing because we can get a camera close enough to them without having to have a human there and thus change their way of um, being. Because of course, if you have a human anywhere near them, they're going to change their behavior most likely. And so one of the big things was that it was able to make eye contact and be able to have facial expressions that allowed it to do things like act submissive when the uh, alpha male came into the group to look at it. And so um, it's very cool. And so um, the producer of the show, Matt Gordon, noted, eye communication is very important amongst gorillas. You'll see in the footage in the first episode, the gorillas came straight over to our spy gorilla and peered right into its eyes. So we made sure that the gorilla had the most amount of detail put into the face. And so it's very uh, Baby Yoda-esque, <laughs> uh, truth be told. And so, yeah, um, I just wanted to mention it. You can uh, see it, more of it, either on the internet or by watching the show if you would like to. Um, I haven't seen it, so, um, but I did see the article on the animal itself, and it was pretty amazing. Okay. Let's end it tonight with some research, which should frankly not be terribly surprising to anyone who's really ever met humans and especially a human woman. It turns out that the simplistic view that early hunter-gatherer tribes were made up of men who hunted and women who gathered and stayed home is just that, simplistic. Skeletal remains from hunter-gatherers in present-day California and from herders in Mongolia suggest that some women were just as adept with a bow and arrow or other weapons as their male counterparts. Now, just a note to be transparent, this information comes from the, sci from the scientists themselves who were supposed to present the information at the annual meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists. However, as with all large gatherings, this was canceled due to the coronavirus, so it has not had a chance to be discussed with others in the field as, wise, as widely as otherwise it might have been. But honestly, the results aren't all that surprising. Nothing is ever as simplistic as it seems when it comes to matters concerning humans. The traditional view of man the hunter and woman the gatherer is likely flawed or overly simplistic, says forensic anthropologist Marin Palud of the University of Nevada, Reno. Now, of course, we could spend a whole hour talking about the foundational assumptions of 19th century anthropology and how that still colors how we see things today, but that's for another time. Skeletons of 128 hunter-gatherer women from 19 Native American groups in Central California, living in one of five time periods between 5,000 and 200 years ago, show signs of damage from arrows and sharp objects such as knives, as compared to 289 males, presumed male warriors, from the same age range. Or sample range, I'm sorry. Now, they may have been on the battlefield, or they may have been conducting other more clandestine acts, but one might argue that they definitely saw violent action in some way, shape, or form. Now, the team analyzed evidence from a database of excavated skeletal remains of more than 18,000 California hunter-gatherers. 
we could also talk about the, that number and its ethical implications for more than a full hour. But a, these were assembled by study co-author L. Schwitala of Millennia Archaeological Consulting in Sacramento. A 2014 survey of the database by Schwitala found that 10.7% of males and 4.5% of females had injuries from sharp objects and projectile points. Now, you might be thinking, yes, but what about raids and other surprise attacks where women may have been killed with weapons? We can't say for certain at this time what the numbers really do represent. Without a warrior's grave containing a female skeleton, we can't be certain, but it seems sensible that at least some women would have fought alongside their male counterparts. Now, a second skeleton from ancient nomadic herders in southern Mongolia suggests that some women were specifically trained to be warriors, especially during a turbulent time of conflict referred to as the Xianbei period between 147 and 552 CE, according to anthropologist Christine Lee of California State University, Los Angeles. A study of nine skeletons from a high-status Mongolian tomb from the period show that two of the three women and all six men show signs of having ridden horses in combat. This conclusion is derived from three lines of evidence, bone alterations from frequent riding and falling off of horses, upper body traces of having regularly used a bow and arrow to shoot, including alterations to the um, shoulder muscle attachments, and arrowhead injuries to the face and head. Now, unfortunately, grave goods were not available as the tomb has been looted. So Lee hopes to find more undisturbed tombs that will positively show that Mongolian women have a long history of fighting alongside men as their equals. We do know that by around 900 CE, historical accounts begin to speak of women warriors that were part of Mongolian tribes. And so while we can't be certain that there were any groups that specifically had complete parity between women and men in regards to their ability to become warriors, we do know that some women absolutely fought and died in combat. Okay, that's all the time we have for tonight. So um, I will be back next week. Have a good week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.